Inconvenient. Adjective. Causing trouble, difficulties, or discomfort. Truth. Noun. The quality or state of being true. When something causes us trouble, gives us difficulty, or produces discomfort, we avoid it. But what happens when we can't? What happens when those things come from our relationship with God? What happens when those things that are so inconvenient are also unavoidably true? This summer, we take a look at truths that we'd rather avoid. Truths about human dignity, sexuality, relationships, our work, and our money. This summer, we explore inconvenient truths. Kids ages 3 through pre-K can head down to uh, Holy Cross Kids Worship. Uh, If you'd like, the rest of you, I invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles uh, to the Gospel of Matthew. It's in the New Testament. It's the first book of the New Testament, as a matter of fact. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, we've got about five or six on the back table. I'd love to give that to you. That is our gift. Grab that at some point this morning. um, It's going to be good for you to have that in front of you. This summer, we've been hitting... uh, a series we're calling Inconvenient Truths. That is, truths from God's Word that are, that are things we'd rather not hear. Many of these things have had to do with our relationship to what pastors and theologians call our cultural idols. By that, I don't mean people who stand up on a stage that you vote on. I mean um, actual idols, like things we worship, things like power and sex and money. These are things that we look to to make life work for us, to make us feel worth, to make us feel value. Calling these things what, we, what they are, false saviors, things that cannot save, is inconvenient. We don't want to hear that, but it is true. And this morning, we begin the last mile of this series with four laps around the issue of money. Now, if you visited with us last week for the first time, and you heard me wrap up our, our, our part of this series that's on, that was on sex, and now you've heard that we're about to talk about money, I have just fulfilled every stereotype you have of church and preachers, Right? That's all we ever talk about. Um, Stick with me. The gospel speaks to these truths, but not because God is looking to ruin us, because he's looking to flourish us. So if you have your place in in Matthew chapter 6, would you stand in honor of God's word? That's our habit here. We're going to be reading verses 19 through 24. As we do so, let's keep in mind that this is God's word, friend. It It is not something we chose for us. It's something that lays claim on us. Hear it in that way. This is Jesus speaking. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart also will be. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if the eye is healthy, the whole body will be full of light, but... If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Father, no matter what we've brought into this room, and we have all brought many different things, We ask now that you would clear those things away or use those things so that we might hear from you. Would you open our ears to hear you? 
would you open our eyes to see you and our hearts to receive you. Lord, we don't need to hear the words of uh, a blowhard preacher. We need to hear your word. We need to hear your gospel. For Jesus, you alone save. And so speak. Your servants are listening. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. We are, well, what's a good way to say this? Well, we are really weird about money. I mean, many of us in this room are or have come from middle class backgrounds. And if there is one unspoken rule in middle classdom, it's we don't talk about money. Right? We don't talk about how much we make. We don't talk about what things cost us. Unless, of course, we got them dirt cheap at some sale. And we certainly, well... We tend to keep things secret or have a justification ready in our minds when we spend extravagantly. We just don't talk about money. We don't want to talk about it. Did you know that Jesus actually talks about money more than he talks about any other topic in the Gospels? That's true. More than anything else. How how do we reconcile those two things? How do we reconcile our silence and his unsilence? My guess is we tend to skip over those parts. Or we just assume they're for someone else. I mean, look, warnings against greed and all that jazz is for those who have lots of money, right? I mean, we can't possibly be greedy. We don't have enough money to be greedy. I mean, we'd like enough money to be greedy. We really want enough money to be greedy, but we don't have enough, so we can't possibly be greedy. Those words can't possibly be for those who are basically making ends meet or for those who wished they could make ends meet, Right? We're going to talk about this topic, the issue of money and the truths that the Bible speaks about it because of the fact that we are generally so silent about it. So we need to hear what God has to say about our money and our relationship to it. Like like nearly everything else, it's not that money is bad, but it can't be everything. So this morning we're going to look at this text in three ways. There's an outline in your bulletin that's helpful. We're going to look at a diagnostic of idolatry. We're going to look at a diagnosis of idolatry, and then we're going to look at an answer to it, all right? A diagnostic, a diagnosis, and then an answer. Let's get started. Now, our passage this morning is very close to where our passage last week is in in the Gospel of Matthew, and and some of you will remember that I said last week that this, this is part of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. That's uh, a passage in which Jesus is preaching to uh, the people. Here, here's what's going on in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has just been baptized in the Jordan, right? He's been baptized. He's come out. He's gone for 40 days in the wilderness uh, where he's tempted by Satan to have all the good things that God had promised him. Hear that. He was tempted to have all of the good things that God had already promised him, but without the suffering, without the pain, without the cost. But then, after rejecting those temptations, he comes back into the region called Galilee, which is in the extreme northern part of Israel, and he begins preaching. And his teaching brings large crowds. And so he heads up to the mountainside, reminiscent of Moses going up on the mountain to get the law, and he delivers this sermon. Okay? In much of it, what he is doing is he's giving us a vision for what life would be like in the kingdom of God. If God were to reign on earth as it is in heaven, what would life look like? And he starts to tell us. Poor would be blessed. The morning would be comforted. Those kind of things. 
And here he covers the issue of money, and he does so in religious categories. And he does this first by giving this diagnostic. Look down at verses 19 to 20. Maybe you've heard these verses before. Basically, it goes like this. Don't put your treasure on earth where it can be destroyed, where it's insecure, where it's at risk, but instead place it in heaven where it is secure. Now, some of this sounds strange to us because of the difference in treasure between our day and and their day. You see, in first century Israel, they didn't have banks, or or they did, but they were very new and no one trusted them. Um, Maybe we should do more of that. But they didn't didn't trust any of them, so they kept all of their wealth on their person or, or close to them. And so Jesus talks about moths eating their wealth. They're like, ah, how does that work? Well, clothes were part of your wealth if you were in the first century. First century Israel, your clothing, was if you had lots of clothes, you were wealthy because most people had one, maybe two sets of clothes. Uh, and so if, if you had clothes they, that were part of your wealth, and so moths could generally eat them, right? Rust, of course, breaks down metals. We get that. So Jesus is saying, if you chase after treasure here, it will always be insecure. You just never know what's going to happen to it. Maybe it gets eaten. Maybe it gets rusty. Maybe somebody takes it. But if you chase, at, but if you, uh, but, but there's another contrast that he wants to draw into, okay? He draws up a, a contrast, a polarity, if you will, that we don't like. First, he, he says there's this either or, right? Store up for yourself treasure on earth or treasure in heaven. There's not a both and, it's an either or. In, in Matthew's writings, when he talks about heaven, he, in Matthew's gospel, he'll talk about the kingdom of heaven. It's often a placeholder for God. So, so what Matthew is actually talking about is, is storing up treasure for yourself on earth or chasing after God. But Jesus doesn't seem to give us the option, even here at the outset, and it's going to get worse here in a minute, that there's a possibility of doing both. It's an either or. Second is the contrast by, of, of what is by nature insecure, right, with the potential for loss, or what is by nature secure. So storing up for yourself treasure on earth is by nature insecure. It can be destroyed, it can be stolen, it can be taken. But storing up for yourself treasure in heaven, chasing after God, is by nature secure. Now hold on to that. We're going to look more to how that's played out later. But then we have this really difficult verse, this question of the heart in verse 21. Look there. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, there are two ways to take this on just the face of it. The first is to say that where you, where you put your treasure will direct your heart. Right? See that? So if you put your treasure somewhere, it starts to move your heart in that direction. We get that. I do this, it leads me in this direction. The assumption going off of that particular way of understanding is that we are neutral. And our actions then then tend to steer our course. The second way of understanding this is that where you put your treasure is a sign, an indicator of where your heart already is. And see, this makes the most sense out of what Jesus has been saying this entire time and what he will continue to say. Jesus is saying this. You want to know where your heart is? Really? Look where your money is. You want to to know where your heart is? Look where you spend your money. Ouch. Right? I mean, how would you like someone to come to your door and be like, hey, we're taking a survey. 
of what people believe, what they value, what they think is really worthwhile. No, no, no. We don't have any questions for you. We just need to look at your bank statement. Just, can we just look at your bank statement? There's no possibility of, like, giving contacts. There's no, like, someone asks you a question, you know the right thing that you should say. No, no. We just need to look where your money goes. That'll tell us things. The real kicker to this verse, though, is that it talks about our hearts. And I, I, I said last week that, that we in the Western world often see our hearts as the seat of our emotions, right? It's a place where we, we feel. Uh, but in, but in, the, in the first century world, in the, in the, the word for heart in Greek didn't mean that. It, it didn't mean the seat of your emotions. It meant the core of your being. Your core commitments, those things that drive you, the things from which everything, other, everything else springs. So the 4th century church father, St. Augustine, would say that, that uh, it shows what we love. It shows what we love, what we ascribe worth to, what we give ultimate value in our lives. Another way of saying that, that the Bible does, is that our core commitments show what we worship. Now, some of you are thinking, Rick, come on, worship. That's churchy, man. That's churchy. What are you, what are you talking about? Worship. What does worship have to do with money? Everything. You see, the word worship in the Bible means simply to ascribe something ultimate value, to give it ultimate place in your life. And we all do that. I don't care if you consider yourself religious or not. Not everyone in this room considers themselves that. We all ascribe ultimate worth to something. We all base our life on something. Whether that something is sex or power or goodness and reputation, whether it's success or money. We all do it. And what Jesus is saying then is, you show me where your money goes, I'll show you what you worship. Show me where your money goes, and I'll show you what you worship. Now that's the diagnostic. Let's now look at the diagnosis. Uh, First, see the location. Look down at verses 22 and 23. These verses seem random, right? I mean, in the middle of all of this, he starts talking about his eyes. Like, what does this have to do with eyes and light and how much light is getting in? What is this, okay? Now, this can be confusing, and so let me just take a step back for a second. Anytime we hit a confusing passage in the Bible, in the Scriptures, the general rule is this. You let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so you, you will go to the, the passages that are more easily interpreted to give context to the ones that are more difficult. Best way to do it, okay? So here's what's going on. These verses are very similar in structure and form to what Matthew's going to write about just a chapter later in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says that if you have a tree that's bad, its fruit's going to be bad. If you have a tree that's good, its fruit's going to be good. The fruit doesn't make the tree, the tree makes the fruit. What he meant there is that it isn't our actions that make us broken. That it's our brokenness that makes our actions. So follow me. Jesus has just said, look, make God your treasure, not this stuff. Worship him, not your money, because because what you treasure is what you worship. That's an imperative, right? That's an imperative. that He's telling us what to do. And then it's followed by an indicative, because this shows you who you are. And now he's fleshing out that indicative. He's fleshing out who we are. Here's the point. Putting both of these things together, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that if your heart is bad, you will worship something other than God. Where your treasure is, is a great indicator of where your heart is. But you can't somehow then shift and say, okay, then I'll put my treasure somewhere else. And think your heart's going to change. 
And he does that by saying, look, if your eye is healthy, your body will get light. If it isn't, getting, more, getting closer to the source of light won't help you. Your eye can't take it in. You following? You tracking? You see how he does that? You see, this is the kicker with Christianity. It diagnoses our problem. And then it boldly tells us there is nothing we can do about it. It tells us what our problem is and then tells you there's nothing you can do about it. You and me, we're done. See, we all worship something because we were all made to worship. Another way of saying that is to say that we all depend on something. We will all depend on something for our value, our worth, to tell us that we're okay. And we will do that because we were made to be dependent. The problem is the Bible tells us that we were made to worship God, to ascribe Him ultimate place in our life, to to see Him as our source of worth, our source of value, the one that we always run to. But the problem is that we are now stuck in our independence, stuck seeking anything but Him. And this is why you can't fix it yourself. Because look, most of us, most of us, believe that our problem is that we aren't good enough. And this is why you and I will often, when we get in the conversation with folks, struggle, struggle when we think about really good people who don't believe in God. Really good people who don't repent and believe on Christ. And we think, God, but they're really good. Yeah. And this is why well-meaning Christians will often make the nonsensical argument that you can't be good without God. Because we think our problem is that we're not good. The Bible, though, tells us that our issue isn't that we aren't good. It's that we, aren't, we are independent of God. And you can be very good and independent, or you can be a train wreck and independent. But you can't fix your independence problem independently. And that is why Christianity is so different than any other religion or philosophy. It tells us that you don't need a restructuring. You don't need a reforming. You need a rescue. God has to rescue you, and he has to rescue me. Our hearts are bad. The eye is bad, and so no light gets in. We have to be rescued. And Jesus makes things really clear with the reality of idolatry in verse 24. He says this. No one can serve two masters. You're either going to hate the one and be devoted to the other, or you're going to love the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Now, some of you are thinking, Rick, of course you can serve two masters. I got two jobs. I serve them both. Or, or you're married and you're like, I know what it's like to balance the commitments between, two, between work and family, work and home. This, this phrase of Jesus, he's just making a straw man. You would be right if Jesus were talking about employment. You see that word serve there in verse 24? Underline that real quick. There are a couple of Greek words for serving. There's one where we get our word deacon from. Okay, that means servant, someone who's doing good things. That's, that's great. Uh, but the kind of, this one, however, is not that. This is the same word that you would see in other places for slave. See, the kind of service he's talking about is the kind of service owed by a slave to a master. And so Jesus is saying, you can't be a slave to more than one person. Here's how this connects. Think with me. I've already said that the Bible tells us that we were made for dependence, that we are dependent creatures. If you believe that your reputation is what will make life right for you, 
at having a good name in front of everyone, right? In, your, in the business community or in, in your church or in your neighborhood or in your family, that having a good name will make you right, will satisfy your soul, then you will do whatever you can to serve your reputation. You will lie. You will hide. Because your reputation is everything. If you believe that being needed will do that, then you will do whatever you can. You will serve to make sure you are needed and never replaceable. And if you believe that money is what will give you value, will give you worth, will make you somebody, and it will keep you safe, will make the world right for you, then you will do whatever you can to serve it and whatever you can to keep it. Now, some of you are thinking right now, it's not like that, Rick. Come on, man. I, I don't need to serve money. I just need a little bit more. I know. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's the whole point in verses 19 to 20. Material riches are transitory, which means that they are never enough. If you place your worth, your value, your dependence on money, Jesus is saying it will always be insecure. Moth and rust will always be able to get to it. Thieves can always get to it. But if you place those things in God, then insecurity can't touch it. See, his point here is clear. You can't have both. Let me say that again. You can't have both. You will worship something. You will look to something to make you right, to make the world right, to give you a status, to satisfy your soul, and to make you safe. You will. But you cannot play around thinking that it is both God and money. I got my Jesus ticket, and I just need a little more quan. Right? just need a little more in the old bankroll. God suffers no rivals. We have either placed our hopes on him, or we are serving an idol. It's the diagnostic and the diagnosis, but that's only part of the issue, right? I mean, what's the treatment? You go to a doctor, he diagnoses your problem, you're not looking like, and he says, well, there you go, you got this, see you later. Like, you're looking to him to give you a treatment. What's the answer? That's what I want to talk about right now, first by unmasking idols. I'm not sure what it is about the desire for money to save us, which, by the way, is called greed. If you struggle with that, and we've just kind of named that and talked about that, and you struggle with that, that is greed. You are greedy. Okay? Sorry to break it to you. That, that, is, that is what it is. But I'm not sure what it is about greed that makes it so invisible to us. I mean, think with me. If Jesus spoke about one topic more than any other one would think it is because he thinks it's pretty prevalent, right? Like, if he talked about it more than anything else, it must be because he thinks we need to hear it because it's such an issue. But how many of us would think that we really struggle with greed? My guess would be very few. And that is why these diagnostic questions are so helpful. They can, they can help us unmask where our dependence is. Here's what I mean. If I were to get a record from you, it was like part of, part of church membership, and it's not, those of you who are thinking about joining a church, this is not part of, if it were, okay, where you, you kind of turned over uh, five months' worth of bank statements. Where you've laid your treasure. 
Where would those things tell me your heart is? Listen, here's what I don't mean. What I don't mean is where most of your money goes to, right? Because some of us are like, Rick, you know how much my house costs, how much food costs? Like, I get that. What I mean is, where does your money flow most freely? Not percentage-wise, what gets the Where does it flow most freely? Is it on entertainment? Is it on making yourself secure through investment and savings? Is it getting the next best gadget or making your child happy with toys? Where is your heart? Think with me. Listen, we, we worship money when we think that getting enough of it will make us satisfied, will keep us safe, will provide for all of our needs, will show that we're somebody. We worship money when our hearts get obsessed when we see it going away. Did you hear that? When we become obsessed when we see that account Getting down and, uh, what do we do? We worship money when it fills our daydreams of all that we would do with it or when we stress constantly about not having enough of it. We know we worship money when we counter a circumstance that we are in, not with repentance at the foolish decision that got us there, And by repentance, I don't just mean admitting that it was a foolish decision, but actually doing something about it. We meet it not with repentance at the foolish decision that got us there, but thinking, if I I just made more money, this wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be stressed. Wouldn't have this problem. All the time going, well, it can't be my can't be my decisions. Can't be what I want. What I want can't be the problem. It must be my circumstances. Ask those who were 10 years from retiring in 2008 how trusting in money to make your future secure worked out. Money can't save you. Money can't make you right because your problem, my problem, is not that we don't have enough money. Money is a tool, a potentially good tool, but it cannot be ultimate. It may be good, but it cannot be God. It is fine to use it, But you cannot serve it. If you do, not only will you be like someone desperately trying to catch smoke, but never quite able to get your hand on it, but you will be left still alienated from the God that you were made for. But this brings us to a better master, because Jesus didn't come just to point out our problem. Jesus came to be our solution. Did you catch that? I didn't say Jesus came to teach us what the solution is. Jesus came to be the solution. He's not like a tutor who gives you the answers from the back of the textbook. He is the answer. Remember what I said a few minutes ago that you can't fix your independence problem independently? That's where Jesus comes in. This is why he came. You see, Jesus is not just a cool dude. He's not just a a good teacher, a really moral guy. He's God in the flesh, God incarnate. We were stuck worshiping anything but God, serving masters of our own creation. So God came in Jesus and served and worshiped God alone. Because we couldn't. And then, though he was completely sinless, Jesus went to the cross to answer for every every aspect, every instance of worship of idols like money that we do. And this is why we talk about faith in Jesus See, faith looks like trust, but it isn't blind trust. 
I use this illustration all the time, but I, I hope it makes some sense to us. I can know very clearly that, that chair is going to hold me while I sit back here. I can trust it. But I don't have faith until I actually place myself in it. That is what faith in Christ is. It is dependence. We place our faith in Jesus and we are united to him. Which means that his faithful life of worshiping nothing but God becomes ours. Before God, it is now credited to us. It's our life. And his death for sin becomes ours. In other words, he rescues us. Christianity is not ultimately about what we can do to get to God, but what he has done to get to us. And this is why Jesus is a better master. Listen to me. If, if you choose to serve money, thinking that money will make you right, how much is enough? How much is enough? And some of you are thinking, just a little bit more, right? But how, how much? How much is enough to make you feel safe? And how will you know? And what happens when you lose it? If you choose to serve money, then you will always have to worry about how to get it and how to keep it. But Jesus is a better master because he gives you what you are looking for out of grace. Something that you couldn't earn. And that means that since you didn't do anything to get it, you can't do anything to lose it. That is why your treasure in heaven, in God, is secure. Because it isn't based on you, it's based on Him. It's not based on how much you do, it's based on everything He did. And so it's secure. Because of Jesus' perfect life, you are acceptable before God, not your good effort. Because of Jesus' perfect death for sin, you are forgiven. Not because of your attempts to hide or to to make it up. And because of Jesus' victorious resurrection, death has no power over you. Not because you saved enough money to cover every possible contingency. And because it is all about Jesus and what has been done, what is finished, you are free to worship God without any fear in perfect freedom. Let me conclude. Money is a subtle idol. It is subtle because our entire culture is inundated with the worship of it. And we believe this no matter where your, what your socioeconomic bracket is, no matter where you fall in that particular scale that we have made up. We all believe that money solves our problems. But it is a lie. Our problem is not resources. Our problem is our hearts. And no amount of money can buy you a new heart. But Jesus offers one to you free of charge. Free, that is, to you. You see, Jesus is the only master who loves you completely even though you failed him utterly. He is the only master who spends himself to pay your debt that you owed him. You cannot serve two masters, friends. Serve Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask by your grace that you would, in this place, uproot the idols of our hearts. There is no one in this room, I am convinced of it, no one in this room who isn't tempted to worship our money. 
day in and day out. And so, Lord, we need your grace to see that it is a false Savior, a faulty Savior, that it cannot save, it cannot keep us safe, it cannot make us someone. Instead, Lord, move our hearts. Our desire is to desire you. So move our hearts by grace from our idols to you, that we may worship a master who is good, who loved us and secured us so that you alone get all the glory, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.